Our subject is called the Gospel of the Governor. That's the story of the life of Joseph from the book of Genesis. But before we go to the actual story in Genesis, what we want to do is go to the book of Psalms. I want you to go to Psalm 105. Psalm 105. Which talks about Joseph. But verses 17, 18, and 19 says this. Talking about God, it says, He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant, whose feet they hurt with fetters, he was laid in iron. Until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. As I read those few verses, I really have to catch myself because I am tempted to preach about five one-hour sermons just on those verses. <laughs> and let me tell you briefly what they would be if we had the time to develop them. The first one is that God sends a man or a woman. God doesn't use methods as much as he uses people. So therefore, how God would prepare you for ministry, how he uses you in ministry, might be very different how he uses somebody else. You and I would like just nice, neat little formulas, go to a school somewhere, learn how to do one, two, three, four, and then it's all going to work for us. God doesn't use methods as much as he uses people. And he sends a man before them, or a woman. He sends a person. And as we will go through this study, the principle is this. You don't have a message as much as you are a message. You don't have a message as much as you are a message. God said to Elijah, Go show yourself to Ahab. Elijah himself was the message. And there's a, a great principle there. And we'll get to it later, but in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, it says, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. And I'm going to come back to that verse where you have to become the word that God gives you. God gives you a vision. That vision has to become you. It has to dominate. It has to master. It has to be your sense of destiny is wrapped up in this word from God. And God's going to spend many, many years adjusting you to fit the word he has spoken to you. He's not going to adjust the word to you. He's going to adjust you to his word. You become the message. So he sends a man. So that's one of the sermons we could, we could easily get sidetracked on. The next one I could get sidetracked on in this verse, it says, Who was sold as a servant. And the very first lesson that Joseph has got to learn is that of being a servant. Because you and I know his story well. 
you and I know that God called him to a position of authority. And when God calls anybody into a position of authority, the very first thing he must teach you is how to be a servant. Because in the kingdom of heaven, authority is only given to people who have servants' hearts. He's got to teach you to be a servant. It is the first lesson, the most important lesson. Because if you don't have this, then you're going to mistakenly think that authority means that you are placed in a privileged position. And likely abuse that position of authority. Authority is not a privileged position. Authority is a servant's responsibility. God gives you power not to dominate, not to lord over anybody. God gives you power to save and to serve. And so the very first important lesson that we're going to learn in the life of Joseph is that when God calls you to a position of authority, you're going to be given over to whatever it takes to make you into a servant. We could spend an hour on that principle. And we probably will spend some time on that principle. Then it says in verse 18, Whose feet they hurt with fetters, he was laid in iron. Boy, I could preach on that as well. And the idea is this, that the process that God takes you through is painful. Don't expect to be pain-free as God works in your character, making you become the message. There is pain that is involved. If I could read this to you out of the Hebrew, it actually says that iron entered into his soul. Iron entered into his soul. And then verse 19, another thing we could say, uh, until the time that his word came. There's a couple of sermons in that little phrase we can go on. And that is, you do have to wait for God's timing. That in the kingdom of heaven, timing is everything. And if you and I try to push the will of God ahead of time, then probably like Abraham, we're going to create some Ishmaels instead of Isaacs. Timing is important. And that you and I have to learn how to, oh, we don't like this, but how to wait upon the Lord. I knew you'd get excited about that. I knew you'd get around the room and shout hallelujah at that. Waiting for the Lord's timing. And sometimes I wonder if God's not waiting on us to develop character. We'll, we'll see that as we go through the story. And then the last phrase of verse 19, there's another message there. The word of the Lord tried him. Well, that means you've got this word from God in your life, and you know what it does to you? It really complicates your life. Life would be a whole lot easier if God had not spoken to you. Because you are going to have to try to figure out how to live with this word from God and then in your circumstances that seem to not only contradict this promise you have from God, but also seem to take your life further and further away from any possibility of this word of the Lord being fulfilled in your life. 
And it becomes a severe trial. What do you do with this promise from God when your life is going backwards? And so I like these verses in Psalm 105 because they give me a paradigm by which to look at the story in the book of Genesis. So let's go back to Genesis. Uh, We'll pick it up in chapter 37 of Genesis. Where we're introduced to the family of Joseph. And allow me to, to say that Joseph grew up, well, the modern day term would be in a very dysfunctional family. I mean, I think if God was looking for somebody to start the 12 tribes of Israel, we could have done something better than these 12. A very dysfunctional family. Now, grew up, you know, I mean, just think, Joseph, we got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. I mean, who's your dad? Jacob. Who's your grandfather? Isaac. Who's your great-grandfather? Abraham. This sounds like a pretty good heritage, doesn't it? However, you know Jacob very well in Scripture. The guy is a, a schemer, a guy who wrestles with the flesh. And Jacob succeeded in creating a very dysfunctional setting in his family. You see, anybody who's married know that having a good marriage is hard work. One man, one woman. Try being married to two women at the same time it's got to be very very difficult try to be married to two women that happen to be sisters who don't like each other is a real problem I mean you know the story of Jacob and we're not going to teach the story of Jacob but by the time it's all said and done Jacob has got 13 children 12 sons one daughter by four different women He doesn't want Leah. The deceiver was deceived. And he gets Leah. And when I get to glory, I am going, I'm determined to ask Jacob a question. And my question to Jacob is, how could you spend an entire night with a woman and not know who it is until the next morning? I don't know if you think about things like that when you read the scripture, but I do. How could you spend the night with someone thinking it's somebody else? And he wakes up in the morning and behold, it's Leah, the deceiver, has been deceived. And so Jacob has to serve another seven years for his beloved Rachel. And now he's got two wives and these sisters don't like each other. He hates Leah and he loves Rachel. And Leah's trying to earn his love by bearing sons. And the score is four to nothing in behalf of Leah. Four sons and no sons for Rachel. And so Rachel decides to cheat and she brings her handmaiden into the story. Have children by my handmaiden and start bearing children that way. And when Leah sees that Rachel is cheating, she brings in her handmaiden. And when it's all said and done, there are ten sons born, but Rachel herself bears no children. Finally, she does. And it's the very beloved who's going to be spoiled rotten. Joseph is born. And Joseph is the 11th born, and after him comes his full brother, also by Rachel, 
Benjamin and Rachel will die in childbirth when Benjamin is born and then she's no longer even in the story so with Rachel dying what Jacob does is he makes Joseph who is the son of his favorite wife what a story makes Joseph as if he was the firstborn the other ten don't even exist now isn't that a recipe for family trouble is this not a recipe for a difficult situation and Joseph well he's spoiled the, the ten older brothers are out there working in the fields looking after the flocks and bearing the heat of the sun and, and what's Joseph doing I get this picture of him in his bubble bath enjoying luxury he's wearing this coat of many colors I hope you understand that in the Bible only royalty would wear such a garment Joseph at the age of 17 is full of himself and on, on top of it he also happens to be very gifted by God he has dreams and in these dreams he's able to understand and predict the future so he's gifted of God he's got a gift but as you and I could see in Genesis 37 he doesn't have much character he is a tattletale did you know he was a tattletale because the Bible says that um, he always brought back, in chapter 37, verse 2, he always brought back to his father Jacob an evil report of his ten brothers. Now keep that in mind because that's going to really play into our story later. He spied on his ten brothers and tattletailed back to Jacob all of their behavior so that his older brothers hated him all the more now at the age of 17 he's only 17 when he gets these dreams he is immature he is unwise and he has no understanding of why God gave him the dreams now listen carefully because here's a principle we're going to be working out in quite detail here when God gives you a promise when God lays a vision in your life when he, there's a burden that's imparted unto you you might have some dreams might be some word of prophecy spoken unto you it might be just a witness in your own heart as God deals with you the truth is this when God speaks to you such a word you have no not even a foggy idea what it's all about you don't God will give you a promise but you don't know now I'm going to emphasize the word don't that's spelled D-O-N apostrophe T you don't know the purpose of it he gives you a promise without telling you the purpose the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13 that we know in part and we prophesy in part and I can stake my life on this I can guarantee this statement to be true when God speaks to you 
there is more he didn't tell you than what he did tell you. I'm amazed what God forgot to tell Joseph, aren't you? Aren't you amazed that God did not think it was important to mention anything about the pit? How come God did not think it was important to mention Potiphar's house? And why did God ignore the subject of Egypt in giving this prophetic word to, to Joseph? And God apparently did not think it was necessary for Joseph to know anything about being wrongfully accused by, by somebody of a severe crime you didn't commit and how you're going to have to suffer in prison for a crime you did not commit. Did God not think that was important? Isn't it amazing what God forgot to tell Joseph. And so when we have these prophetic words spoken over our life, the truth is this, you only know a tip of the iceberg. You do have some general understanding of the promise, but you do not know the context in which it will be fulfilled, and you do not know why God gave it to you. Therefore, if that's true, your interpretation of the promise when God speaks to you most likely is about 100% wrong. Understanding the function and the purpose of the promise will only come to you as the word of the Lord tries you. And we're going to look at that in the life of Joseph. I want you to imagine how Joseph probably interpreted these dreams. Do you remember these two dreams? His sheaf of wheat stands up in the field and 11 other sheaves of wheat bow down to him. And he has the, the lack of discretion, he has the foolishness to actually share that with his brothers who already hate him. This is not wisdom. This is a 17-year-old who is infatuated with himself. He's infatuated with the gifts that God has given him. And he's very foolish in his behavior. He's very poor in this thing called tact. He is lacking sensitivity. He is just enamored with himself because of his gifts and Father Jacob has elevated him to the special place and it has gone to his head and he foolishly has to tell his brothers this dream with the result that they hate him all the more. You think you're going to reign over us? <laughs> over our dead bodies is their attitude. And if that's not enough foolishness on Joseph's part, he has to tell about a second dream. And he even tells his dad about this one. This time there's a sun and uh, a star. And there are 11 other stars. And we can handle that so far, can't we, Jacob? But when the sun and the moon also have to bow down to him, well, even Jacob's upset this time. You mean your mother and I as well as your brothers? And Jacob's not impressed with Joseph either. But Jacob does hold it into his heart because he doesn't know where this is leading at all. I want you to see that Joseph, as gifted as he is, is really without character. Now please understand, are you going to hear me say this many times today, giftedness without character is 
dangerous. Giftedness without character is dangerous. Don't go there. I mean, if I was to say, saw a poster on the somewhere advertised, and we've got special revival meetings, and the guest speaker is Samson. Are you going? Will you go? I'll guarantee you there will be displays of the power of God. You will see supernatural things happen. Great. Are you going to go? How about this one? I saw the sign. It said Judas Iscariot Ministries, praying for the sick and casting out devils. And God, Jesus, gave him that authority. If he's coming to town for revival meetings, are you going? Judas Iscariot Ministries. Are you going to go? He does pray for the sick, and he did cast out devils. I'm just using some extreme examples to get a point across. That is, giftedness without character is horrifically bad. There's a prophet coming to town. His name was Balaam. Guaranteed to prophesy over your life. Are you going? I'm not. As a matter of fact, I might be foolish enough to stand up and raise my voice against it for the sake of the cheap. This is dangerous. You don't know what you're getting into. By lifting up my voice, I get myself in trouble. But all right, it's okay. But the thing is, giftedness without character is awfully dangerous. We don't want to go there. And we have a 17-year-old who is anointed with spiritual giftings, who is a hopeless case when it comes to character at the age of 17. I am sure that his interpretation of these dreams was, look, I know you guys don't like me having the preeminent position in this family, but I've got news for you. Heaven just spoke to me, and even God said that you must bow down to me. I am sure that would have been his interpretation. He would have taken those dreams and thought they applied to his dysfunctional family. He does not know the purpose. He knows nothing about Egypt. He knows nothing about a worldwide famine. He knows nothing about becoming the governor or the prime minister of Egypt. He wrongfully takes this word from God and applies it to the dysfunctional situation as justification for his errant behavior. Let me repeat, when you get a word from God, you don't know the purpose it's like a seed in the ground it's going to have to bear the blade it's going to have to bear the ear it's going to have to bear the full corn in the ear it's going to have to grow and develop in your understanding as to what the purpose of this is all about he has personality problems, he has relational problems, he's selfish, he's insensitive, he throws his pearl before swine. He's arrogant, he's spoiled, he has a sense of superiority because he's got a gift from God. He has a desire to be noticed. Did you notice that? He wears that coat of any colors everywhere. I mean, Jacob says, would you go check on your brothers out there in Shechem, please? So he's walking across the field 
And you know what he has to wear? I mean, you could see this guy coming for miles off. He's got his coat of many colors. Everybody could see. He has this desire to be noticed, desire to be admired. He is enamored with himself. He has abused the gift that God has given him. He foolishly has to use these dreams and tell them when people are not ready to hear them. He even tells his own father he's intoxicated with his own gifting and he's lacking wisdom and common sense. A gifted man without character is a dangerous thing. Now, I'm going to just draw some principles from Scripture generally and then come back and illustrate them from the life of Joseph. I know you all can quote 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 13 where Paul writes, So now abides faith, hope, and love, these three, and the greatest of these is love. There are, I think it's 11, maybe 12 times in the New Testament where faith, hope, and love are mentioned together. The most famous one is 1 Corinthians 13, 13. But these three things always work together. Let me explain how they work together because it will serve as a good foundation for understanding what was happening in the life of Joseph. I have taken a survey, uh, I haven't done it for years, but I've asked congregations that I've preached that, have you ever heard a message on faith? You know, it's 100% everybody. I mean, we've been inundated with faith messages. And then I said, have you heard a message on love? Surprisingly, it's not 100%. Maybe 75 to 80% of believers. See, I can remember a message dedicated to love. But when I ask, have you ever heard a message on hope? The church usually gets very, very quiet and, and almost hangs its head in shame. Now, this is terrible, but the average response when I've asked that question is maybe between 3 to 5% only. Say so, yes, I remember a message on the subject of hope. Now that bothers me because if we have become hopeless, we're in a sad state. And I would say if we don't know what hope is, I don't care what you've heard on faith, you don't know what faith is either because Hebrews 11 says faith is the substance of things hoped for and you're not going to understand faith until you first understand hope. So let me give you in brief uh, a short biblical definition of, of hope, which I'm going to develop in an entire seminar, the subject of hope. But briefly, hope always refers to the future. It's expectation of your future. It's always a positive expectation of your future. Hope doesn't relate to the past. If I ask the question, how many of you just hope to be here yesterday? Well, you may have wished for it, but hope is not projecting itself backwards. Neither does it make any sense for me to ask, how many hope to be in our class today? You don't have to hope for it, you're here. You don't hope for what you already possess. But I said, if I was to say, how many hope to be here tomorrow, or how many hope to be here next week, or how many hope to be here next year, the question makes sense. Hope is always directed towards the future. 
Now, a good biblical verse would be Romans 8, verses 24 and 25, that says, what you're hoping for is you're waiting for it. You're waiting for it. With patience, you're waiting for it. If you possess something, you're not hoping for it. You're hoping for what you do not possess. So let me put it this way. Hope refers to a promise or a word that God has given you that is not yet fulfilled. It refers to a word or a promise that God has given you that is not yet fulfilled. But, you use the word hope in this context in a very different way than a non-believer would use the word hope. Because a non-believer, the word hope only refers to a desire, preference, or a wish. The farmer sows his seed in the springtime. Are you going to get a good harvest? I hope so. In other words, I want it to be. I have a strong desire that that would be the case. But I can't guarantee it because there are factors that are outside of my ability to control. I can't control the weather, the wind, the rain, the sun. And those things got to cooperate. And I can't control that. But I'm hoping it all comes together. So it's just... A wish. There's no sense of guarantee. You might be let down. But as a believer, when you're talking about something that God has promised you that's not yet come to happen, it's not just a wish, it's not just a preference, it's not just a desire, it's a guarantee. And the reason it's a guarantee are two reasons. Reason number one, Hebrews chapter 6, 18 and 19, is that it's impossible for God to lie. Did you know that? It is impossible for God to lie. If God ever told a lie, the universe would cease to exist. Because the Bible teaches us that all things are held together by the power of His Word. And if God's Word is not true, then the sun won't come up. But I noticed it did come up this morning. God's Word is still true. It is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, you can trust the character of the person who gave you the promise. The second reason we have such confident expectation of God fulfilling his promises is found in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. It says, you and I have been born again unto a lively hope, a living hope, an animating hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. This is not a fable. This is not a myth. This is not a fairy tale. The actual fact is that God raised his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. Now, 1 Corinthians 15.26 says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And if death is the last enemy, and that's already been conquered, that means that there is no enemy that exists. Not in heaven, not under the earth, not on the earth, not in hell. There is no enemy anywhere, in anywhere in the universe, at any time in history, past, present, or future, that is able to stop God from doing what he said. Now, I don't know how he does it, but I'm glad he does it. He even takes the things that his enemies throw against us and actually makes it work in your eternal favor. All things work together for good.
And 1 Peter 1.3 calls it a living hope. It means it's something inside of you that makes you come alive. You are not dead while you live. You are alive. I look at you and I see a sparkle in your eye. There is a smile on your face. There is some cheer in your heart. You have a happy, cheerful disposition. And when you walk, there seems to be a spring in your step. Hope has made you come alive. Because regardless of what you see around you today, folks, I read the end of the book, we do win. We do win. You know the final outcome, no matter what's happening today. And that puts some joy and peace in your heart. It makes us come alive. Amen. It makes us come alive. I feel sorry for people in this world who have no hope. That their mind, will, and emotions are shaped by the news broadcast. They are forced to try to manipulate world events to secure their future. You and I are free from that need. I know, we know what the future is. And it's bright and it's cheery because somebody who's got character has given us a promise. So hope refers to this sureness about your future because God has given you a promise. But it's not fulfilled yet. So we are not living in the fulfillment of the promise. We're living in the expectation of its fulfillment. So how do you and I live today while we're waiting? 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Well, what's faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. In other words, you have deep within yourself this inner knowledge. You just know that you 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 know. That it's going to be as God said. And what you do is you choose to live according to this faith that is the substance of things hoped for. You live by this faith that is in you, and you don't live by your circumstances. Your mind, your heart, your will, your emotions are not controlled by your circumstances. They are controlled by this word from the Lord. However, this is where it gets tough. The Bible talks about the trial of your faith. I knew you'd shout hallelujah at that one as well. The trial of your faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-9 to says it's more precious than gold. You don't believe that, do you? <laughs> more precious than gold. You don't believe that. Let me give you an offer. In this hand is a bag of gold. I mean, just think of the big house you have. Think of the extra second house you got in New York City. Oh, think of the one you've got in Venice, Italy, and you even got one in London, England. I mean, just and think of the car. Think of the old private jet you have. You'll never cook another meal in your life. You'll never house clean again. Think of the yacht you'll have and all the tours and cruises you're going to go on. All you have to do is pick this hand. It's a bag of gold. 
On this hand, all I can offer you is trouble. Misunderstanding, false accusations. I can promise you the pit treatment. I can promise you the prison. I can promise you you're going to meet Potiphar's wife. I can promise you your life is going to be so full of trouble that you're going to be filled with situations that are full of fear and anxiety and cause for concern. Now, would you please make a choice which one you would rather have? Which do you think is more valuable, more precious? You don't believe that the trial of your faith is more precious than gold, do you? Only somebody with an eternal perspective would ever agree to that. The problem with gold is that it perishes. But he that does the will of God abides forever. But if we continue in those verses in 1 Peter 1, 6-9, verse 9 says, Receiving the end, not the beginning, not the middle, but receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. That's old King James English. Modern English would be the end result of you going through the trial of your faith is the reformation of your character. Or in the words of Hebrews 10 verse 39, we're not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who stand in faith, who believe with the result of the saving of the soul. Or in the words of Hebrews 11.3, you're getting framed. Ever been framed in your life? Somebody framed me. You're being framed. That's old King James Bible. Framed by the word of God. You're constantly having to decide between your outer circumstances and this word from God. Because they contradict. They are contrary to each other. And you're going to have to make a choice. And the Bible calls this process the, the trial of your faith. Because here's something that's going to make you shout hallelujah. The person who gets the promise is not the same person who receives the fulfillment of it. Oh, it's you all right. But it's a different you. You have to be radically changed. When God gives you a promise, you're not qualified to receive the fulfillment of it. You don't have the character that can be trusted with the fulfillment of it. And so God has got to do a number on you to change you into a person that can be trusted with the fulfillment of what he's promised you. And to do that, he has to subject this word that you have in you to trial. The word of the Lord tried him. Iron entered into his soul. So I suppose he has this dream, your brothers will bow down to you. And instead of bowing down to him, they throw him in the pit. Now isn't that completely opposite of what God just said? Is that not just the opposite of what God just said? So when, when Joseph was in the pit, I'm sure he went, well, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, God, I love you so much. This is just wonderful. Thank you for fulfilling your promise to me. Or did he cry out in the fear of his life? And when he's in the pit, when you're in the pit, you have to make a decision. Am I my mind? Is my mind, my will, my emotions, my heart? Are they being governed 
by this word from God or am I taking my cue from the pit? If you take your cue from the pit, your emotions are crying out in fear. If your faith is strong, your emotions are calm even in the pit. You see, this is what I mean when your mind, your will, your heart, your emotions become framed. They become shaped by this word. And God's teaching you not to live your cue from your circumstances as opposite as they are, but to, to live according to this word from God. And it's a long process. This takes a long time for us to learn. We don't learn these lessons overnight. It takes years for this word from God to become the controlling factor that, that controls your heart, your mind, your will, and your emotions. Through the test of your faith, you're being framed, adjusted, coming into submission to this word. In other words, you're becoming the word that God gave you, being adjusted by it. And this is what had to happen to Joseph, he had to become framed and adjusted by that word before God could really use him in the ministry that God's got for him. has to be adjusted by that word. you know how old Joseph was when his brothers actually bowed down to him? He was 39. He was 30 when he became prime minister. Seven years of plenty. Two years of famine. He's 39. How old was he when he had the dreams? 17. How good is your math? How long, how many years did he wait? 22 years. Aren't you glad I'm not preaching about Moses? <laughs> then I'd have to change it to 40. The Bible uses one word to describe this character change that slowly happens through the trial of your faith. One word, and that word is the other one, love. Faith, hope, love. Because Galatians 5, verses 5 and 6, especially verse 6, it says that faith gives birth to love and then expresses itself through that love. You may not understand it, you may not catch it, but from God's perspective, this character change that is slowly working through you, this character change, is you're actually learning how to love. That's what's happening. You don't know that, but that's the goal that God's got. By, by you're dying to yourself. You're becoming submissive to this word from God. Your mind, heart, will, and emotions are being shaped by it. When you're choosing to believe God instead of living by your circumstances, you're living by this unfulfilled promise from God, you're actually being taught how to love. Now, if you and I could grasp that, then you and I would be able to understand, and you and I would be able to say then, the great business of life is learning how to walk in love. That's the great business of life. Because I could stop talking about Joseph and I could start talking about God's great eternal purpose where the great hope set before every believer is the appearing of Jesus Christ. That's our great ultimate hope. And the big lesson in life to prepare us for his appearing is to walk in love. The great lesson in life is to walk 
in love. That's the great message. That's why when I ask if you've heard a sermon on love, it should be 200%, not 75. We should understand this principle. Walk in love. In Joseph's case, we do understand that God was waiting for Joseph to serve his brothers in love rather than use his authority to lord over them. When he was 17, he would use his authority to lord over them if God granted that authority right dead and there. But when he learned to love his brothers, he wanted them to be partakers of the glory he had inherited in Egypt. But I am running ahead of the story when I say that. You see, God has got to work in our characters very much so. You know, when Darla went through the trial of cancer many years ago now, the thing that God really spoke that seemed to help us, and it seemed to help a lot of people, is the illustration of a bow and arrow. You know, Psalm 64 was the psalm that God gave us. And in that psalm you have this teaching about how your enemies are shooting at you with their arrows. Unjustly so. Things happening to you that you don't deserve to happen to you. You have enemies that hate you and they're going to shoot at you with their bow and arrow. But then it says, but God will shoot at them with a bow and arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded. And the two thoughts there, the bow and arrow and the word suddenly. And I come to the conclusion that it sure takes God a long time to act suddenly. You know, what God does is He takes time. Oh, does He ever take time? Until the time your word comes. He takes a long time to set up your life. But there comes a moment when it's sudden. And in one day... God, who knows how to manipulate all world events in your favor, will take you from 20 years, or in Joseph's case, 17 years of backward movement, from promise to prison. In one day, take you from prison to prime minister in one day. Now that's sudden. But it took God 13 years to get the man where he could act suddenly. It sure takes God a long time to act suddenly. But when he does act, it bewilders us at how fast it comes together. When God's timing is right. When the vessel is prepared right. So I want you to think of, of God's promise to you that's not yet fulfilled as an arrow. Now hold the arrow in your hand and how far do you think you can throw it? How far is it going to go if you can throw the arrow? It's not going to go very far. So what God has to do is... Oh, is this God or is the devil? Would you help me understand? Because you want to go that direction, and you're finding your life going backwards like this. And you rebuke the devil, and you're binding the devil. Well, for all the rebuking and all the binding you're doing, the fact is you are still going backwards. 
And you won't even acknowledge the fact that you're going backwards. Because if you acknowledge it, well, then you don't have faith if you make such confession. Would you please open your eyes? You're going backwards. Oh, it's the devil. Excuse me? It's who? It's the devil. Excuse me? Who is it? Listen, you're an arrow. And before the arrow can go that direction, it has to be drawn backwards under pressure. No backwards pressure. There's going to be no suddenly when the arrow flies the right direction. This backwards movement, would you stop blaming the devil and giving him credit? God may use the devil, but the devil is just a tool in God's hands. This backward momentum, this backwards pull, this pressure that's putting you the wrong direction, and you can feel the tension, you can feel the pressure. This is the trial of your faith. It's all working in your favor. Because when God says suddenly... All those years of pressure, all that momentum that's been backwards is stored up in this thing called energy. And when God releases his fingers from the bowstring, all that energy is going to push you, I think Ephesians 3.20 puts it this way, far exceeding, abundantly above all that you could ask or think. All Joseph was after was his brothers. Would you get down on the ground and kiss my feet, please? Little did he know that God really meant Prime Minister of the most powerful nation in the world at that time of history. Far exceedingly, abundantly above all he could ask or think. So without advance notice, the trial must begin. The trial must begin. Now listen carefully because there's going to be some deep lessons that we're going to hear about here. Most people have this tendency, I might even be safe to say all people have this tendency, at the beginning of your Christian experience, that your sense of self-worth your identity is wrapped up in your gift. You're not going to like what I'm going to say. But your coat of many colors has to go. Your sense of importance, your sense of identity, your sense of self-worth is wrapped up in the gift that God has given you. I'm a prophet. So therefore I'm going to prophesy to everybody I see. Foolishly open your mouth and prophesy to everybody you see. Foolishness. Why? Because your sense of value is in the fact that you can prophesy. You're not caring about the people you're ministering to. It's building your own identity. How many people are guilty? is that, you know, 
I'm more concerned about my teaching because that gives me a sense of self-worth than I'm concerned about you. If that's my attitude, I have some serious character flaws. If somebody who's a prophet, you know, has got to prophesy to you because that's what gives them their sense of self-worth, they have a serious character flaw. And Joseph, at the beginning, what was important to him was his ability to dream, not the concern for his brothers. Here's a great mistake. Horrific, great mistake. Your identity, your sense of self-worth, better be in the fact that you're in relationship with God, not in your ministry, not in your calling, and not in your gift. It better be in your relationship with God. Because we're going to soon find out in the story of Joseph that God put Joseph in a situation where he couldn't dream a dream for the next ten years. His gift that made him so important in his own eyes was put on a shelf for ten years. I knew you'd get excited about all this stuff. Put on a shelf for ten years that coat of many colors has to go. So one day, Jacob says, where are your brothers? Uh, They're out in Shechem somewhere. I think you better go check on them. Why Joseph wasn't out there with them, I don't know. He should have been out there working too. But Shechem, that was a dangerous place to be because if you would remember Genesis chapter 34, I think it is, that Levi and Simeon did an awful thing at Shechem. I mean, they had all the, the men of the village circumcise themselves in this lie that they could start marrying their, their daughters with one another, and they went in there and slaughtered them while they were in not so good shape. Uh, Jacob had reason to fear the men of Shechem. He said, you better go check your brothers out and, and hear their brothers see this. I mean, you could see them a mile off. Here comes the coat of many colors just walking across the field. Everybody could see this guy coming and let's, let's kill him and let's see what happens to his dreams and, and the trial begins without any sense of warning now God who knows the end from the beginning works according to his agenda which you don't see this is why this takes faith It's because you don't see the end from the beginning. You don't know where you're going. All you know is you've got this promise in you. And once God gets that word in you, it's in you. You're hooked. And you can't deny this word of God that is in you. But all of life fights against it. You've got to live by this word from God. But God sees the end from the beginning. You don't. And so God's preparing you for a ministry you know nothing about. You're confused. You think your gift is your ministry. You're confused. Your gift is not your ministry. Your gift might be a tool in your ministry. But don't equate your gift with your ministry. And don't equate your gift with your sense of self-importance. The coat of many colors has got to go. Ten years 
He doesn't have a dream that we read about in Scripture. Can you just imagine the ability, not the minister, what's in your heart for ten years? You don't get the chance. You see, what God knows is that Joseph is going to be prime minister in Egypt. God knows that Joseph doesn't. But if you're going to be the prime minister, if you're going to be the governor of the most powerful nation in the world, and God is going to use you to feed the masses during a time of famine, if you're going to be the salvation of the world, and in specifically the salvation of your family in the time of famine, you're going to have to know something more than dreams. So you have a great dreams. Well, isn't that good? What's that going to do to, to help us? What's that going to do to, to, to heal us? What's that going to do? So you can dream dreams. Joseph, that's wonderful. What do you know about administration? What do you know about management? What do you know about being an authority? What do you know about giving orders to people? What do you know about accountability? What do you know about wealth? What do you know about administrating and managing wealth? What do you know about any of those things, Mr. Dreamer? Do you know any of that stuff? Do you think your dreams is going to give you all of that, all the other abilities? And so Joseph has to learn all these other skills without knowing that he's going to be the prime minister of Egypt. So where does he learn these skills? <sighs> you know, he begins to learn it when he's sold as a slave. And then there's a guy, a very wealthy man, by the name of Potiphar. Well, he will buy Joseph. And Potiphar was a man of means. And the Bible says that the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And, and other gifts started coming to the surface. Other skills started to become known in Joseph. And Joseph has no idea that he needs to know this stuff. No idea. But God, who sees the end from the beginning, knows what Joseph needs to learn. The coat of many colors has got to go. His conceitedness about his giftedness has got to go. And he's going to have to start learning some things that are only learned in the mundane routine of life. Oh, but it sounds more spiritual, doesn't it? Just to have dreams and prophesied over people. And God's going to make me live the mundane routine of life. Well, please tell me what your definition of spirituality is. Is it the super spiritual stuff? Ooh. Or is it character developed in the mundane routine of life? What's your definition of spirituality? If it's a giftedness, you're in for a problem. Your coat of many colors is going to go. It's character in the daily routine of life. Joseph had to learn this thing about submission to Potiphar. Joseph had to learn to manage somebody else's stuff. It wasn't his wealth. Joseph had to learn to submit to somebody. Joseph had to learn faithfulness. Joseph had to learn routine. 
Ooh, isn't that a... I know you'd shout hallelujah at that one. Routine. He had to learn routine. Joseph had to learn management, administration. He had to learn to be under authority, and then he learned to be in authority. Here's a principle. You may not understand where you are in life. You may ask yourself, why have I got this dead-end job when I have a promise from God upon my life? Why am I in the circumstance that I'm in? Why? Because this is God's university for you. It's called the University of Adversity. The University of Adversity. It means in your present circumstance, you are learning skills required for the future you don't yet know about. Which means this. Therefore, you and I, whatever we are doing at our present time, are to do it as unto the Lord. You don't see how this applies, but God, who knows the end from the beginning, sees what you don't see. You need this skill. Please learn it well. Do it as unto the Lord. Everything you do, do it as unto the Lord, and do it with the spirit of excellence. You be the best in the whole wide world at what you do, because where you are is really the university of adversity to prepare you for a future that you still don't know about. You don't know how to interpret this promise from God. It's going to be interpreted for you far above and beyond your expectations. But you need to learn these lessons. So Joseph goes from a silver spoon in his mouth to a slave. Potiphar, he was a wealthy man. Uh, If you could read the Hebrew, it says he's the chief executioner. He's the the head of the royal bodyguard. He's actually close to Pharaoh. A very important, important man. Let me just uh, say something here, then we'll take our break. Uh, Let me just say this. Joseph was forced to start over with a new life and please, you're not getting the old one back. I wish I could go home. Forget it. I wish we could just go back to the way it was. Forget it. Hear me and hear me well. So life has changed. A crisis has come. A trial has begun. Something has happened to change. And you wish you could go back. Please get it into your head. We're not going back. You can't. It's over. Accept the reality that God has immersed you in an entirely new situation. You can't hold on to what life used to be. It's over. As much as we don't like it, as much as we're more comfortable, we could just go back. 
You're not going back. It's over. Get your heart out of there, into the present, and move towards your future. And with that, we are finished our first session.